You're listening to Trek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. I'm so glad that everybody has joined us uh, tonight, today, tomorrow. Whenever you're listening to this, welcome to the 602 Club. We have a huge show for you. We're going to be talking about Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. I didn't think that a film could be more polarizing than Man of Steel. I was wrong. But we're here to talk about that tonight, and I think it's going to be great. Before we do that, I do want to mention real quick that uh, the 602 Club is part of the Trek FM network. You can find us on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a featured provider there. And while you're there, hit us up. Give us a star rating and a review for the shows we have on Trek FM. Of course, the 602 Club and the Star Wars feed we have as well for the 602 Club. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. I'd love to get some voice emails from people about what they thought about Batman v Superman. Go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and you can leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the show if you do. You can send us an email. I'd love to have long-form email just about what you thought. Trek.fm slash contact. And of course, we're going to be talking about this all over the Babel conference once the show drops. On Facebook, just type Babel into the search field there. We'll let you into the group and you can enjoy talking with all of the listeners about all the things that we have going at Trek FM, not just the 602 Club, but so much else. So come celebrate Star Trek and beyond with us there on the Babel conference. Well, I have some fantastic heroes here to talk about. Batman v Superman, and I've got to say, it's great to have you back in the 602 Club, Tristan. It's good to be back. I have been looking for an excuse, and you had me booked, I think, a year ago, maybe more, for this show. I, I felt like a, a five-star restaurant, you know, it, it's, so thank you very much for treating me that way. Well, you know, I, I know what a big fan you are of the Batman, and uh, I, I was like... I. You know, if we're going to have somebody on the show, we got to have somebody to represent the Bat and uh, or the Bat of Gotham, as he's known here. And I, I'm super excited to, to dive into this with you. And I'm going to plug it real quick. Tristan has this great show, and I want you guys to check it out. Uh, it's called Nerd Nuptial. It's fantastic. And him and his wife talked about Batman v Superman, and I think they did a good job, a really fair and balanced discussion. And I'm not even going to tell you whether they liked it or not. You're just going to have to go listen for yourselves. I'm really excited as well to have kal I mean Norm, back to the 602 Club it's great to have you back, buddy. Oh, it's great to be back. You're actually really close. It's uh, My last name's Lau, so it could be Norm L, technically. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, I am representing uh, in the 602 clip tonight wearing the Christopher Reeve 1978 shield. And there's a very specific reason why, and I'll get to that later on in the discussion. Man, you're just teasing things all over the place. It's like we're teasing a Justice League or something. I don't know what's going on. I love there. when a, a man can describe his shield. It really, like, seriously, no joke. Like, when you can describe where your shield is from and what year it's from, that is massive respect points right there. Oh, I'm Norm L. 
I have to keep it real. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, especially if you were to get like super geeky and you're like, hey, this is the 1938 shield. This is, you know, this is the, uh, which one of my favorites, the Kingdom Come shield. And so mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. You, you know, you're a super geek when you see somebody with the Kingdom Come shirt and you're like, oh, respect. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's no, I mean, it's no surprise to anyone that's going to be listening to the show that the three of us. We are very heavily invested in our heroes. So this is just a, a sign of appreciation in that investment. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Literally That's and right. figuratively with our wallets <laughs> and our hearts. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and our walls and our desks full of superheroes. I'm surrounded by them right now. But uh, you guys are not here for that. Okay. So after Man of Steel, the, the question for the team became, okay, what are we going to do next? And uh, the 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 running plan had been that they were just going to do Man of Steel 2. Uh, but the real question became, okay, what villain do we do? Where do we go next? Who do we bring to stand up against Superman? Okay, we had Zod, you know, one of the, the biggest villains Superman has. There's a lot of punching. Uh, what do we do? And uh, somebody brought up in the discussion, as Snyder will tell you, or uh, uh, Deborah Snyder will say, Somebody brought up this idea, what if Batman was the villain that we face? What if Batman is the person that's, that Clark has to go up against in the film? And they couldn't get that idea out of their heads. And so I wanted to ask you guys, you know, DC made the decision that Man of Steel was going to be the foundation of the DCU. And so I wanted to ask you, as we come into Batman v Superman, Story-wise, how do you feel like this takes Man of Steel and continues to build towards that greater DC extended universe? I feel like uh, Man of Steel was a great groundwork to work from, and uh, Batman v Superman it 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 had to build off of that because I, it's already it, it's it's so funny because if they didn't build off of Man of Steel, people would say oh, they're trying to ignore perceived failure in the past. But since they did build off of it, people have said, oh, they're all they're doing is responding to fan criticisms because of all of the destruct- destruction in Metropolis. This is why we can't have nice things, Tristan. <laughs> because it doesn't matter. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> that That is exactly like what it's like to be a DC fan. I think uh, in the show, like in my other show that you've mentioned, Nerd Nuptial, I talked about how DC being a DC fan is all about hope. There's always hope that there's going to be something better. And at the beginning, right at the beginning of the of Batman versus Superman, we we get this great heart-wrenching scene and the heart-stopping scene of Bruce Wayne driving through Metropolis like a madman trying to get to the building, his 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 own building to help save lives, and he's the he's the one who runs towards the danger and it's I, I, it's it's thrilling, and it establishes the pre- man of Ste- man of steel's conclusion. Established the premise of this next film. I mean, that's the way that it should work. I absolutely agree. And one of the things, Matthew, that we talked about when we did the Man of Steel review was, and we said this, I think, in the show is like we're going to return to this moment when we're going to talk about the destruction of Metropolis, because that wasn't the end game of that movie. It was just the thread that was going to com- continue into whatever the next Superman movie would be. And in this case, now it's going to be Batman v Superman. And we don't say versus, it's Batman v Superman. 
And that's that's something that we should definitely talk about because that's a very distinct point. This is not a a fight versus someone, a something to better someone else. This is a summary judgment against something else. You know, that's what V stands for legally. So we see the fallout, literally and figuratively, of what's happening with Metropolis and Bruce Wayne seeing that there's something bigger than even he could have predicted in all of his crime fighting, something completely out of his ability to control. That brought so many different fears back in him. The fear of losing the, the ability to exact justice, the fear of not being able to continue and complete his mission as a crime fighter, the ability to not be able to categorize and com compartmentalize this thing, this alien, this otherworldly power. It's foreign to him. And that must have freaked him out big time because usually in Gotham, he would have had a pipe bomb, something blowing up a safe, maybe taking out half a building at best. Now you're dealing with people at the speed of thought, moving at powers that only gods can control, destroying entire cities, leveling entire buildings, killing thousands of people at whim. Not because it's planned on, it's just because it's the aftermath of these two powers and these two combatants going at each other. So what do you do as a human? How do you propose to stop that? What's your mentality? And, and where do you put yourself in the scheme of this power struggle? I found that so interesting that they, they hit it so quickly in the movie and it propels the narrative right then and there. It, it's a gut check to this isn't just about Superman and this isn't just about his growth anymore. This is about how this is affecting the lives of so many other people from that moment. And they did such a great job with that, too. There's an actual scene in Man of Steel where one of the fighter planes that was going up against the world crusher, raper, whatever you want to call it, it falls because of an EMP blast. And you see that exact plane like fly over Bruce Wayne's head in the Jeep and hit a building. It's almost like they really decided on doing this as they were filming the end of Superman or Man of Steel. So it, it immersed you right away into what the theme was and the tone, and I thought it did a great job of doing that. Just the fact that they get Zod's heat vision perfect in the film so that the movement that he made in the building is the exact movement that you see made on the side of the building is just incredible. Like uh, the attention to detail uh, of connecting this film with, uh, you know, Man of Steel, I think was really fantastic. And, you know, I, I've heard lots of things about, you know, like we were talking about, oh, they're just trying to make up for all the criticism and all that. But if you're not using major plot points, storyline to storyline, movie to movie, then what are you doing? I mean, nobody gets mad at, you know, uh, the Avengers for uh, you know, using plot points from all the movies that built up to that to get where they are. I mean, like... It just doesn't make sense. Like, that's how you build story, that especially connected universe. I mean, and if you read any comics, that's exactly how the stories work. <laughs> they interconnect with each other to make a larger story. So you put it all in a graphic novel and then you sell it, you know, as the Dark Knight Returns or you sell it as the death of Superman or, you know, any of those things. Connected stories uh, come together to create a whole and you can really tell I think that they really are trying to create a whole trilogy with this Man of Steel 
Batman v Superman and then moving into the Justice League films one and two, that this really will create a, a co cohesive whole as much as possible. Uh, and then splintering off with all of the films we'll get like Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Flash and that kind of stuff. So I, what I love here is that they they do use Man of Steel. They don't deny it. They use everything they have, the good, the bad, and of course the ugly that people have talked about uh, from that film. And they build a really, I think, compelling story. And they use it also as the foundation for why you're going to have Batman, as you were saying, Norm, V, Superman. This differentiation between the two. Whose version of justice are we going to go with? You know, um, the film is also called The Dawn of Justice. So one of those two people's versions of justice is going to win out in this film. And they've set up that very well here as... Bruce watches Zod and Superman fall from the sky. He is resolute in thinking, okay, this guy is my enemy because of look at what he's done. And I love the fact that, I mean, I just, I think that beginning scene, you're seeing it from a different perspective. You know, we saw the first fight, obviously, in Man of Steel, we see it from Superman's perspective, but now we're seeing it from the ground and how horrific it is. And I like that juxtaposition between the two and how you could come away with different responses. You know, Superman's doing everything he can to make sure I think there's as little collateral damage as possible, whether you agree with it or not. But unless he engages Dodd, it's going to be worse. So you either go save a few people and have Zod kill thousands more, or you just engage Zod and you get collateral damage. So. Well, I think in that. When we talked about Man of Steel, it was you and me and Will and Daniel. And we, I think we all actually agreed the fact that there was going to be a comeuppance for what happened at the end of Man of yeah. Steel. And I think this is it. Yeah. And, and I think it, what I love is that they don't, again, they just don't shy away from it. And Snyder uses as the opportunity with uh, Chris Terrio and uh, David Goyer to really create a script that's around that and is going to create the greater threat to which everybody else is kind of like circling around in this film so uh, after man of steel honestly i can say this and, and norm you can back me up because we had many a conversations online offline about this and this is kind of where i figured that they would go with the storyline uh, especially once they decided batman was going to be in the film and, and so not a lot of this really surprised me I, I kind of expected it and it will be interesting to see how we feel as we talk through the rest of it um i do want to ask you guys so the batman you know we, we see his parents killed at the very beginning of the film and i wanted to ask you guys about that sequence and how you felt about that do you feel like that was necessary or do you feel like it wasn't like that people know enough to know, yes, Batman's parents were killed, you know, like, do you feel like that we needed to have that there at the beginning of the film, that reminder? I feel <laughs> it's, it's hard to say because uh, I've been aware of Batman being an orphan almost since my own birth. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to objectively say we need it or we don't need it because Every single iteration of Batman um, on film as well as, you know, in comic books have talked about him being an orphan. 
And, you know, it's it's become almost a joke to talk about the slow motion pearls falling and hitting the cement. And yeah. it, it's it's become a cliche and it's it's become a part of our collective pop culture consciousness. And I personally, I don't think you necessarily needed it uh, because I feel like it's just fodder for people to just roll their eyes saying, oh, we're seeing it again. You know, like we're seeing them walk out of, you know, Zorro. We're seeing them, you know, like we're seeing the gun in slow motion. We're seeing them fall. You know, this, 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 we've seen this so many times before. Uh, but at the same time, later on, you know, like when you have the the turn of events and uh, the the point of no return in the story, you kind of need that that flashback, even though I think they did that turning point not so great. Uh, you need that flashback to really hit home the theme that they were trying to hit home. Yeah, I think the one thing that you saw differently here was the scene where Thomas Wayne utters his last breath, his last word. And that was who he was thinking of. He was thinking of Martha Wayne. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that we didn't see in all of the other versions of the origin story. And just from um, a narrative perspective, we sometimes have to take a look at these movies from a different observation point, i.e. sometimes we have to believe that these movies aren't just for us, the comic book fans. There's a general populist audience that sees movies out there that have absolutely no idea what's going on, for the most part. You know, I, it, we all have work coworkers. We all have people that come up to us because we are the, the, the water cooler for all of their comic book talk, you know, we, around the water cooler. And then they ask us about, like, why did this happen? What happened here? What was this for? The, the whys and the wherefores. And it's because they know that we know this. But if we weren't around, there still has to be at least some type of clear narrative as to why these things happen. Sure, we can go into a movie and say, really, an origin story again? Spider-Man getting bitten on the wrist again? You know, uh, the Fantastic Four not being great again? You know, but... <laughs> Then you sit back and you look at the people that kind of like are sitting next to you and they're riveted, absolutely engaged in the story. And they're, they are the audience I think that this needs to appeal to because we already know it will go just because we want to see what's happening. But it's the people that need to be captured by this story that need to spread it among their friends who aren't really all that steeped in it either. So it's a real balancing point here between what we've already seen going in as fans and what people need to see going in as audiences that are pretty much kind of like the tabula rasa effect. They have no idea what's going on. So in order for that point, like you said, Tristan, in order for, for the point of no return to be made, that scene has to happen for other people, not necessarily for us. Well, and I, th I think one of the things that I noticed that by doing that scene and the way they do it, especially with the dream sequence as, uh, you know, Bruce is, is running away from the funeral one it sets up that bruce has some very vivid dreams which come into play in the, the rest of the ever. film uh <laughs> but what it also sets up too what i thought was fantastic and really interesting that there's that scene when i remember the first time seeing the movie where he's kind of raised out of the bat cave by these bats and i was like oh no please tell me we're not going to go to crazy town oh yeah i would film. have the same worry and then Bruce says this thing that he's never said before, and the light led me to a beautiful lie. And he's setting up this really interesting idea that's going to come into play 
later on in the film when he have his confrontation with Clark and Superman. Batman is his beautiful lie. Batman is the beautiful lie of the lesson he feels like he learns from his parents, which is the world only makes sense if you make it. And Batman is all about the, the character Batman that Bruce Wayne creates is all about trying to make the world make sense in a world that doesn't for him because his parents were gunned down for absolutely no reason. And I think it starts, uh, I think that scene being portrayed like that actually plays out really well in this film. And I think there's a lot of validity to doing it. One, for what you said, Norm, there are going to be people that go to this film. This will be their first film that they'll see Batman. You know, it's, it's going to happen, you know? Um, two, I, one, it's the way it's artistically shot is incredible. Uh, Zack Snyder is a genius with image, uh, I think. Um, sometimes I think he has Lucasian flair to him in the way that he's like, you could pull out just about any image from this film and it would be something you could put on your wall because it's just so artistically done. But I, I liked the way that this, it, it's not just let's retell the story and let's do it in shorthand but it's playing into all the themes that they're setting up for the film for specifically the Bruce Wayne character and his arc that he's going to go through in this film. Because if we remember anything from the Dark Knight trilogy, lies get Batman into a lot of trouble. And this here, I loved that they're referencing that. This is a different universe, but the same thing happens for Batman. He tends to build his life on a lot of lies. And it unravels. It brings him to very bad, dark places. This is going to happen to this Bruce Wayne. And I, I think it's... Let's just get into it. The, the players on the board. There are a lot of players in this movie. And uh, Lex is kind of moving people around like chess pieces. And, of course, there's an added layer in this film, if you are a comic book fan, that there is somebody else controlling Lex. And we can tell that by the end of the film. There's something else that's having an effect on him. And then once we get that extended cut that's coming out, the three-hour cut from Snyder, the one he really wanted to release to us, I think we'll really understand exactly who's behind everything. It's not just Lex Luthor. It's somebody else pretty dark and sinister. And I'm just going to spoil it for you. His name's Darkseid. So. Uh, so I wanted to talk dark about who? the stories. Dark, dark side. Dark side. Not dark oh, seed. Yeah. No, Not yeah, dark, dark seed, seed, dark side, yeah. So I wanted to start with uh, Bruce Wayne, Batman, Ben Affleck, and what we think of him and kind of the storyline that they end up creating for this Batman. I said this from the very beginning when Ben Affleck was cast as Batman. I said that he's going to be perfect. I'm going to go out there and say it right now. He was perfect as Batman in every possible way. And it's not that I didn't like the Batmans that came before. I mean, I was straight up there in 89 with Keaton, Keaton twice, Kilmer, Clooney, Clooney. Um, do, we, do we want to talk about Clooney? Yeah. Uh, no. no I mean, let's just admit he's the best Batman ever. I mean, ever. seriously. Ever. Batskates. So, <laughs> Forever. <laughs> I liked all that. It was fun. It was a, a reflection of the way that cinema was at the time. Uh, Tim Burton had a certain thing with it. And then we went to the Nolan films. And then we had Christian Bale, who I also thought did a pretty good job as Batman. I never felt that the tone was quite there with him, especially the voice. And I'll nitpick. I just never liked his voice as Batman. 
and I never really cared for his costume. I Why? Really You're right. Yeah. Give me a taco. So I never really cared for a lot of the aesthetic because I always felt that it was playing towards marketing action figures. Not like this one isn't. But when I saw the costume there, it was instantly Hush for me. It was like, oh my God, it's Batman from Hush. Oh my God, it's Jim Lee Batman. Oh my God, this is Batman that throws punches that knock, that can like destroy cinder blocks. That's Batman to me. That's Bat Batman is the walking embodiment of human punishment based on what he saw as a child that fueled his rage to superhuman proportions. He pushed himself so hard to never fail. And I always felt that in Affleck's performance, I'm seeing bits of his character from the town. I'm seeing bits of his character from Argo. And I'm seeing this general seriousness of somebody who didn't want to let the fans down in that daredevil kind of way. It just, everything worked for me. And he looked like Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne, we, we know Keaton's Wayne was a different thing. We know that all of his successors were a different thing. And I thought Bale's Bruce Wayne was really good, but I felt there was just this great arrogance that Ben Affleck has playing Bruce Wayne, but also this great vulnerability. But when he was in the cape and cowl, my God. Oh my God. So good. So good. And the fight scene at the end, he just punished people. Just straight up beat down criminals in that I am just not messing around kind of way. I got no time for you. The world's about to end. I got to stop something. I'm going to go to 11 on the I'm going to take care of business scale. And I'm going to push it because this is my last chance to do something great as a mortal because I'm walking into literally a fight of immortals and gods. Does Batman, does this Batman listen to taking care of business on his way to taking care of business? Is that how he gets pumped up? The one thing that you're missing from his, his cape and cowl because it's blacked out and stealthy, he was a really big fan of Elvis and he has the TCB with a lightning bolt. Okay. Fused okay. onto his gotcha. Okay. TCB in a flash. Uh, no, I wasn't as sold as you right away. I, uh, uh, I, I have admitted this uh, all over the place, online, offline, uh, that as soon as Ben Affleck was announced as Batman, I was the first person to scream no into the dark void that was my life at that moment. And A lot like Vader. Uh, uh, almost exactly like Vader. And I... I just I I rejected the idea. I was like it was like this can't be this can't be happening. This has to be I'm being punked right now. This is all just a this is a ploy for something. This this can't happen. And then I saw Gone Girl. Is that because you're is that because you're not an Affleck fan or how where does that come from? That comes from I don't think Ben Affleck is a good actor. That's the problem. Is that I I I have seen him act well once before when this announce announcement was made and I was like, this guy's a great director. He's a good writer. I just don't think he's a, a great actor. And I just, I could not picture him as Batman. And as time went on, I started becoming, you know, more used to the idea. And I was just like, okay, you know, maybe I should reserve judgment. Just wait until I see some footage, wait until I see the movie. And then I saw Gone Girl and I was like, oh, wow, he was really great in that. And you could, you could tell by the third act that he started to bulk up for the role because that's, <laughs> that's when he realized that he was going to be Bruce Wayne. And I was just like, okay, well, he's, he's kind of, you know, he's, he's starting to look the part. He has the chin. And then uh, I started seeing, they started releasing trailers. And then I was just like, okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. And then when we saw that fight scene in the third trailer, the third and final trailer, that which we later found out was the scene where he was trying to free Martha Kent. I was like, I am sold. 
Like this is this is good. Like Ben Affleck, I Ben Affleck is Batman in this. Now, I still like Keaton and Bale more, but I like uh Affleck more than Kilmer and Clooney, which I never thought I would ever say. I love that though. I mean, and and I, you know, I- it's funny the way that that everything works and and the reactions that we all have for things because I remember too when uh, they cast Ben Affleck and and we talked about it Norm I was also very excited uh you know I knew Ben Affleck from Goodwill Hunting I knew him from The Town Jiggly uh, bro Jiggly yeah, which he, no, uh, which he was fantastic in. I also um, knew him from Argo and then Gone Girl. So all of those things, I felt like okay, Ben Affleck has turned himself into a very serious, very good actor. And the way that they were going with Batman, one, he's older, he's gruffer. Basically, Gotham is Jersey to Metropolis is New York. Who better to play Jersey Batman? than Jersey Boy himself, Ben Affleck. It just totally made sense. And then, of course, throughout the film, the way that he plays his Bruce Wayne is very much that kind of rich boy from Jersey who doesn't have all the sweet manners, but he looks nice and he's rich, so people give him the time of day, you know? Um, That'd be from Long Island. Those are the Long Island Waynes. Yeah, he just he I I felt like he was playing that part so well, you know, um and I also liked that this Batman I, I felt like was being a detective. Um we don't see that a ton in a lot of the Batman films, some really detecting. Keaton was uh, really good in Batman. Yeah, yeah, that was I feel like that was the last time I felt like I, we had a lot I of I need detecting. to come in with defense because this has come up before. And I'm always the first person to go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because what happens was is, is, is that so many people, like people like to take, um, and Matt, don't take this personally. I'm using you as a sounding board um, or a jumping off point. Like people like to take uh, gifts from the Dark Knight where um, Bass is beating the crap out of someone or like, you know, like he's, he's grabbing, you know, like uh, the dude's head and just like, where were the other drugs going? You know, it's just, and like, and then like, he's like beating up Bane going, where's the trigger? And you know, like everybody's just, uh, and then they put the caption, like the world. Where is she? Exactly. It's just like, and people are like, oh, the world's greatest detective over here. Well, that's bullcrap because in the comic books, when his detecting did not work, he would beat the crap out of people. Yes. And also yes. in the dark night, you know, like, think about when he used the bullet for fingerprints. You know, that is hardcore yeah, yeah, detective no, work. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely, uh, I don't want anybody to hear me. I love the Dark Knight trilogy. I absolutely love it. And, in fact, Tristan and John Mills and I decided today, we were talking on lo- offline, online, but offline for the show, that we're going to cover that later on this year because we all w- want to get into those films. So, I don't want anybody to hear me oh, I'm not, feel like I'm I'm not questioning your yeah, love no. of, uh, of The yeah. Dark Knight. I'm just saying that like, lots of people will say, like, oh, we haven't seen Batman be, be a detective since um, since Michael Keaton. And I just I, I have to say I disagree. No, in, in, in good defense. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I, I liked what we did see in this film. Um, I also like the partnership that he has with Alfred. I liked that they're very much a partnership in this, um, more than him just being the butler um, and the worry wart that he kind of is in the Dark Knight films. And Batman actually um, I, gave him coffee, 
which I thought was exactly really that was great. Yeah. That was awesome. Um, and, and you tell you could tell that there's a genuine respect that these men have. We'll talk about him later. But one of the things that I love about the Batman character and in the Bruce Wayne characters, they set this up at the very beginning. We've seen Bruce Wayne's parents murdered. We've seen his mother murdered, and Bruce is saving Wally's life, the man who is under the girder there, and he's lost his legs, and he notices the little girl, and he goes to save the little girl, just as Batman would, you know, very cat-like reflexes there. And he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to find your mom. Where's your mom? And she points to the building that is utterly destroyed where she's pointing. And at that moment, he's looking at the satellite coming crashing down. He's looking at Zod, and he's looking at Superman crashing down to Earth. And I think in that moment, it begins Bruce's utter hatred of Superman because he sees this man, just like the mugger who took his mother away from him, he's taking mothers away from other people. And as Bruce says later on the film, and I think it's, I'm going to curse here, so I apologize, and I'm going to leave it. It's not going to bleep it out because it's in the film, so if you saw the film, But he says, that son of the bitch brought the war to us. And he sees this person who has brought his people's war to human level, and it has destroyed families, it has cost human lives, and he can't let that stand. You know, Bruce sees Superman as an alien that never and could never be one of us. And that's the beginning, that's the... I think that was really, really strong and really well done, and that's why they do the scene, I think, with um, Martha and Thomas dying, and then and again, they connect that, and, and I I love that this kind of starts this whole thing is that it's about mothers. This is going to be a story about mothers. The first film is about fathers. This is a film about mothers, and I thought that was really interesting. You know, going back to this scene, it it brings me back to some of the debate that has been out there on social media and online and some of the reviews. And they keep saying that these two characters, you know, Henry Cavill and and Ben Affleck as Clark and Bruce, they're not acting like heroes. I can't even disagree with that more. Look at what Ben Affleck did at the very beginning of this movie or Bruce Wayne did. He ran right into danger without any of his gadgets, without any of his tricks, without any of his armor. It's not the costume that makes him the hero. It's his heart that makes him the hero. He ran right into there. He lifted that girder with no, uh, without hesitation. He ran to save that girl without a moment's thought. You know, it's just he did it because that's what he does. That's a hero. And it's even better because he's in civilian clothes. And this is Bruce, this is playboy millionaire Bruce Wayne that everyone's seeing. And he's not supposed to do this. He's not supposed to sully his hands, dirty his fingernails. But he goes in there and he gets the job done. Why? Because that's the instinct of a hero. That's what heroes do. So... I don't understand where that comes from. Like these guys aren't acting like heroes. Like being in your costume with all of your stuff, that's easy to do as a hero. That's what you're expected to look like and be like, but doing it because that's what you're just instinctively bred and born now to do that. That's DNA. That's hero DNA right there. Something that I notice about Bruce as well is this, again, taking a little bit from the Dark Knight trilogy. Harvey Dent has the wonderful line when they're having dinner uh, in the Dark Knight, and he says, either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And what I love is that 
there is this spiritual connection to that trilogy that this Batman has lived long enough to actually become the villain. And I love that that plays out. People are like, why is Batman shooting people? Why is Batman branding people? Because this Batman has become the villain that he never wanted to be. Uh, he even, I love that he even tries to play it off with Alfred. We've always been criminals. You know that. He's trying to justify his behavior. And of course, that's why Jeremy Irons' wonderful Alfred challenges. It's a, kind of in a Yoda way. Your fear leads to anger. Your anger leads to hate. And your hate has left to suffering. I mean, you'd bring Star Wars back into this. And, and, and I love that, though. <laughs> yeah, it's only a matter of time. But I love that that has come to play. And I think what's so interesting is we've seen a myriad of Batmans on film, right? I like that they're not afraid to give us a Batman who's gone too far and needs redemption and give us a storyline we haven't seen on screen like this. I, I, I think that it's bold, it's brash, it's very Zack Snyder, and it fits with the film, and it fits with, you know, the first movie, Superman had a lot to learn about how to be a Superman and how to become the icon. This is Bruce's road to becoming the icon. He used to be that, but he's not anymore because he's lived too long. In fact, Alfred even says that. Even you have lived too long to die young. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. What do you guys think of that? And especially since, you know, this is a Batman who brands people. He shoots people. He's not afraid to um, have collateral damage um, that he causes so he could kind of skirt around the issues of yeah well i you know i just dragged the car they flipped over and they died you know what i'm saying like uh, what do you guys think about that well, tristan you're a big batman fan mm -hmm. yeah. so there's something online that i'm not the biggest steeped batman fan but i know batman enough to know that if i get into a conversation online about it it probably doesn't end well <laughs> but you know because you either walk into this movie understanding that you need to open up your mind about something or you're going to hold this to a certain criteria. And the biggest thing in this movie was Batman and guns. How did you feel about that? I've never had that big of an issue with Batman and guns. Um, I It's kind of become the hot button issue to talk about because if you look at the pantheon of comic book of Batman comic book history, it's been um, peppered with guns. I can't say littered, but I can say peppered because uh, I don't want to be overstating things. And it's, you know, like I've, there was a lot of callbacks in this one, like when um, there was a lot of times when uh, we thought, it, like according to the trailers, we thought Ben Affleck was holding a gun when actually he was just holding a gadget. I knew it was a gadget. Other hardcore comic book fans knew it was a gadget. And like there was a big callback to The Dark Knight Returns because he's holding a rifle that looks like a hunting rifle. And then it's actually just to uh, shoot a tracker or something like that. And mm -hmm. and that, you know, just, or, and that, that was to shoot a zip line in The Dark Knight Returns. And with the guns in the dream sequence, I thought it was fine. I thought, I loved that sequence. I thought it was an amazing action scene and it was a one single cut when he was fighting and he was shooting and I was like, okay, this is the apocalypse. Uh, Batman's got to bend some rules in order to survive the like apocalypse. All bets are off right now. Yeah, exactly. So I was yeah. absolutely fine with that. And there's always... <laughs> and another thing that made it okay when we were out of the dream sequence is that the only time he used guns as guns was on his vehicles, which 
Like lots, like a lot of people forget that every single Batman in the history of film has had guns on their vehicles. Yes, they have. And taken <laughs> people out. Michael Keaton has killed a lot of people as Batman, and no one talks about it. Because it was awesome when he did it, and he was Batman. Exactly. It's just like Christopher Reeve killed Zod. Nobody wants to talk about it. Okay, I don't want to hijack this, Matthew, but this is this, this is a really good point and something that we really need to stress because it actually does come up a lot in this movie are the two things. It's like it's Superman killing, albeit in a certain way in Superman 2, Batman using guns a, lot, a certain way in Batman, the very first one with Keaton. So what is the general populace, not the general populace, no, that's not fair. What is the, the, the general populace of comic book fans that go to these movies? What are they not remembering? I, I feel like it like it's in the past 20 years of Batman, it's been hardcore. We're not going to use guns. It, it's, it's very much so, very much so. So for the past two decades, that's been permeating through our comic book culture. And then that was solidified in popular culture when that moved from comic book culture to popular culture with the Dark Knight. You know, like the first Dark Knight was the f- first comic book movie to make that kind of money. And... And Nolan made a point of saying, no killing, that's my one rule, no guns. You know, like he, like he, at the beginning of Dark Knight, he took out all the guy, all the fakers or the imposters who had shotguns. He made sure to, he, he not only disarmed them, he broke their guns. And then, you know, like the Joker said, you're going to have to break your one rule. I don't break my one rule. And then even in the third one, you know, like we have Batman say to Selina, no guns, no killing. You know, it's it's so it's been reinforced in our minds over and over and over again. But yet people have a short memory. We live in the 24 hour news cycle, so we can't remember what happened in yesterday. Even take Batman Begins. I mean, he straight up kills Rajah Ghul because he doesn't save him. He makes the choice to let him die, even though he could save him uh, and take him to trial and all of that. No, he chooses to let him die, which is just as good as pulling the trigger. So we're talking about like technicalities that are walking a really thin hair here, you know? So it's like, what I love... You mean like lashing the Joker to something that will drag him to his doom? Yeah, exactly. Um, I I just, I I really like that, I like this Batman because I like that we're getting to explore, just as we are with Cavill's Superman, something different that we haven't seen on film. And Batman has been done a lot of times, and so we're taking a different road, and that's okay. And 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 like year to your point, Norm, I don't understand why people walk into these films thinking that it's going to be what's in their head, because any filmmaker creating any superhero has to synthesize hundreds of comic books and over seventy-five years for Superman and Batman and create their version. And be true to certain aspects of different versions of the character. It's never, I mean, I think the Oliver we get in, in, in the Arrow, it's, it's not the, the same Oliver that we all know from the comic books. It's different. It's the, it's the TV version. You know, it's the same thing for every film. So I, I just, it's funny to me because I don't get it. Um, but anyway, we got to move on. And I want to talk about Henry Cavill as Superman because I really. A lot of things were made of Superman and Man of Steel, that he wasn't heroic enough and all of that. And I I got to say, 
I really like one. I love Cavill as Superman. Uh, two, I really want them to give him another solo film because he deserves it to really flesh out this character. And three, I think he is the Superman that everybody was kind of looking for in this film, uh, in the last film, in this film. Like he's the hero. He does what a hero does. You know, he's off saving people. All that. I just, I really, I thought it worked so well for me in this film. Yeah, I just I I don't understand why people like there was a quote running around online where like some kid was quoted saying I liked it towards the end when they started acting like superheroes. Well, I'm sorry, your eight year old shouldn't have been in the theater. I I, I just I I cannot get over that. This is a ra- this is a PG thirteen movie for a reason, and I feel like that's a gross overstatement because they had a montage in the movie, a montage showing him save several different people in all parts of the world yes i i i you you don't get more superman than that i'm sorry he was not showing his his pearly whites for a crest commercial but he was saving people (laughs) he was pulling a tanker he was a little busy even for superman that's heavy (laughs) people people want people act like they want superman to wink and smile at the camera like chris like christopher reeve did because he literally did that when he was in space. Every single at the end of every single movie, he would wink at the camera and then you know fly off into the sunset, which was cool back then. That would not work today, and you can't have it both ways. And thank you for leading me into why I'm wearing this T-shirt. Because, and I'm going to put everything into perspective before I say what I have to say. That Superman in 1978 changed my life, and it made me a fan of superheroes and it made me believe in the hope that superheroes give you or supposed to give you. That was 1978. I was five, six years old. That's a different world. You know, it's a different time. It's a different narrative. George Reeves in the 1950s, different time, different narrative. That was the Kurt Swan era of Superman. It was the Superman and Supergirl and Crypto and the monkey and uh, 20 different types of kryptonite. It was just the way things were. In For me, in order to accept that Superman is a character that's not stagnant and that can that can be and some type of allegory to what's happening in the world today, you have to embrace the fact that he's going to change. He has to change. A good friend of mine said, "Like you know, why would I bother watching Superman? I mean, he has like a billion powers that can solve every single problem in the world. He's boring. You know, he everything that he does, he can do better than everybody else. I mean, what's the point of what?" It's like Superman has Kryptonian world problems, really, right? So what's the point of watching? There's no drama there. The drama in this movie and in Man of Steel is the fact that it's not Superman. That it's somebody who's struggling to find his way. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who's not human trying to be human. He's somebody who's not a hero trying to find his way to being a hero with marginal success because nobody accepts him. I don't see why that would be any different than if he actually just dropped on the planet today. Would we accept him? No. Why? Because that's how human beings are. So why should that be, I mean, why should that be reflected any different in our media? You know, why should we put him on a pedestal of, you're right, Tristan, at the end of every Superman movie that Christopher Reeve was in, he flies around the world, he smiles, everything's going to be okay, and he sails off and we're going to see you in the next movie. That's not how the world is today. That's not how our, our heroes are perceived today. Is he a little bit darker? Yeah, the world's a little bit, a lot darker, right? So 
if he was somebody that was created in the world of today with the Kents trying to give him the fostering of a person of today, then you have to give him the, the values and the morals of today. Well, and one of the things that I love here, you know, Superman's not boring because Superman's not omnipresent. He has all of these powers, but he can't save everybody. And that's what I did really like about this film is Superman's struggle is that, one, he can't save everybody. He's haunted by not being able to save everybody. And nobody seems to care about the people he is saving. Um, and every time he acts, something terrible and unexpected happens you know he he goes like in he goes to the senate he goes there to answer the questions he goes there to be a part of our process and somebody sets a bomb there that he didn't see because he wasn't looking because he wasn't on guard and he feels like that's his fault you know if if you had all of these powers and knew what you could do and all of the people that you couldn't save were weighing on you. I just, that's the thing I love so much about the scene with Paul Kent at the top of the mountain. Him saying, Look, son, you, you can't save everybody, and that will probably weigh on you, but you have to hold on to what is good and what you're trying to save, or else you'll lose yourself. And, you know, Superman, yeah, he's he's an incredible character. He can do all this stuff, but he can't save everybody. And and I loved that this film too. You know, a lot of people again complained in the first film. He's not superhero enough. He's not doing enough to save people. But Perry challenges. He's like, look, if it was 1938, you could stand for something, but it's not. And challenging that idea that look. America is different. He even talks about Perry says America lost its its collective conscience. It's dead. Yeah, with Martin, John, and Bobby. I love that line. Yes, it's awesome. And and what I love is that how hard it is for the heroes. It's hard for us to have heroes these days because we don't have a sense of absolute good and evil anymore. And everything about the world that reminded us that those things actually existed, we've kind of taken out. We've taken out God. We've taken out religion. We've taken out everything else and we don't have a foundation for that anymore. So Superman's kind of like a relic of a long forgotten age. Uh, and I think the true struggle for our time is that we have a desire for a true hero. And at the same time, we ostracize them because heroes like Superman, I think just kind of remind us of everything we've lost with our expulsion of absolute truth. And, it's hard to have a hero that reminds us that we're not as good as we used to be because we don't even try to be as good as we used to be. And that's why all of our heroes are morally ambiguous and look more like us now. And they even talk about this in this film. You know, one of the great media pundits on, you know, in that segment says, what if he's not a devil or a Jesus character? What if he's just a guy true and trying to do the right thing? Did Neil, and we're crucifying did Neil Tyson him for that? not doing good, good enough. I I don't think it was uh, Tyson. I think it was uh, it was a person. It was it was a white guy I did not recognize. Yeah, uh, I don't remember who. I, I can't remember who it was. Um, in fact, I even think he's off screen when he's saying that because okay. Superman at that point is saving the uh, spaceship that's blown up. And uh, I think it's really awesome because what happens in this movie, and again, huge spoiler. 
they do the death of Superman. And it's Superman dying that brings Bruce back to the light. It brings Wonder Woman out of retirement. It brings the world together. What I love in that scene at the very end with the candlelight vigil is it's people from all over the globe. It's every race, tongue, tribe, and nation in that scene. And Superman is living out in his death by giving his life for us, a world that has rejected him. Yes, I know, it's very Jesus. Uh, that he's living out exactly what Jarrell said he would. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you, they will stumble and fall, but in time, they will join you in the sun cow. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. And that started because Superman was willing to say, this is my world, I will save it no matter what the cost. And if that's not Superman, if that's not an ideal to strive towards, giving your life for a complete strangers, people who actually hate you and still sacrificing your life for them, I don't really know it is. So anyway. Yeah, Snyder does love space uh, Jesus. Well, yes, he does. And I mean, Superman as mythology likes the idea of not just Jesus, but a, a messiah right, figure. Um, uh, yeah, a messianic I mean, figure, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so it, it 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 yeah, it works very well. Um Amy Adams is back as Lois Lane and I love Amy Adams. Something's wrong with you if you don't. I that's so true. I mean it's it is very true. Uh I wanted to ask you, is she just the damsel in the, I've heard this a lot that she is just the damsel in this movie and that her part has really nothing else to do with the film, like you cut her out. So Tristan, I really wanted to ask you because you talked about this with the girl on your show, and I know both of you are are you, you know you 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 call yourselves feminists, and and I trust your wife's opinion on that because of that. And so I wanted to get your take on how, especially taking a little bit from your wife there, what you guys thought about her uh, in this film. Well, both um, both my wife and I love Lois Lane. Um, I love Superman more than she does, but with I was worried about that. I was worried about Lois Lane just being the damsel in distress in this movie because we live in such a hypersensitive culture that I was like, okay, you know, like I'm gonna keep my eyes open. I'm gonna make like I'm gonna see if there's any kind of perceived slight and uh, make sure that you know Snyder's is on his toes and and nobody makes a misstep for Amy. And once I realized and accepted that Lois Lane gets saved by Superman and Superman saves Lois Lane. That's their dynamic. You have to accept that and then move on. Now, the thing, if you just judged it by that, then yeah, she would be the damsel in distress. But that's their dynamic. And Lois is a strong journalist who is fearless and who wants to go for the truth and just happens to be in love with the most powerful man on earth. So, yeah, Superman, the most powerful man on Earth, or alien, whatever you want to call him, you know, has a girlfriend who loves to travel the world and get in trouble. So naturally, she's going to get saved by him constantly. But because she is a, such a well-written character and such a strong character, it is okay for Superman, this god among men, in order to save her because that's what it is. That's the character dynamic. Now, if, now, if so Superman constantly saved Wonder Woman... That's a different story. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Yeah, super well, and, good point. And what's great about Lois is that she would do those things 
if Superman wasn't there. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that she would be just as strong. She would be going into danger. And yeah, she probably would have died before this. But she would still be pursuing the truth as a journalist, as she always has, whether Superman existed or not. And I think that's the thing is this time she just happens to have a, a super boyfriend who can come in and, and, and save her. Um, when she does get into trouble, and that, that's that doesn't make her a weak character or a damsel in distress, it just makes her the classic comic book character with, I think, a greater sense of agency and purpose than she's had in you know like twenty years probably in comics. Yeah, not every female character in every single comic book movie, hell, not every single movie has to know how to use a gun and fight in order to be considered a strong female character. Well, let's not forget, at the very beginning, her establishing scene, I think the warlord said, it's like, well, they sent me a woman. He's like, no, a journalist. You know, she made that very clear that there's, there, you know, like, take the gender out of this. Mm -hmm. They sent, the Daily Planet sent their best journalist to, to, to interview him. And then, yes, you know, by, by the nature of the way that the uh, dynamic is, Superman does hate her, but... It wasn't just because he wanted to, it was because he was maneuvered to. You know, that was all set up in the plot. Mm -hmm. You know, so she wasn't really there, you know, as Lois Lane, as reporter. There was a very specific reason why she was there. But I also found Lois, and I mean, Amy Adams is a fantastic actress. I love her as an actress. But her Lois always felt to me like she was a really great sounding board for Clark. You know, she he needed that third perspective. You know, his father was gone, his mother was there, but he needed somebody in his life giving him perspective. That's what partners do. You know, and I know some people were like, oh, she's, she's, you know, she's in his life already. Well, what do you expect? You know that they already had a relationship at the end of Man of Steel. This is just an extension of that story. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not, we're not in the 1950s, 1960s of is he or is he not? Does he love me or does he not? Are we going to get married or are we not? Now, this is a very modernist version of that relationship. It's going to evolve probably a little bit more quickly than usual because they are in love. That's one of the reasons why he does what he does. So I love that she doesn't pull punches, that she tells him what he needs to know and how he needs to be able to make these decisions based on all of the information that he has. It's because she sees it as a journalist, but she also sees it as somebody who cares for him. So that's a relationship. That's partnership. You know, that's, that, that, gives, that gives everyone a sense of these two are on equal footing. Because they are in this together. It's not that go, you know, my superpowered boyfriend, go beat up on that trucker that wronged me in the diner or, or beat up on that uh, grocery clerk who didn't give me my discount. No, it's, it's about these are the problems of the world that are coming down on you. Let me help you shelter or shoulder some of that burden. Mm -hmm. I'm in this with you to get, you know, we're, we're in this together. I found that so refreshing to see because now he actually somebody, he has somebody who's his equal. Not necessarily physicality, but equal in spirit, equal in, in emotional content. Well, and what I love, too, again, is that it, it, you really see this in the Amy Adams story with Lois Lane and then everyone else, is that Lex is controlling everyone in this film. Like, he has spent, as he says, on top of the rooftop, uh, two years working on Bruce Wayne and everybody else here. And he set up that desert scene so that um, if when Superman comes to save Lois, it makes it look like Superman has caused an international incident that has caused instability in a country that has caused mass death because of the reaction to Superman coming to save her. 
Um, and what I love is that people say she's useless in this movie. It's her getting the bullet that gets Swanwick to investigate that only the CIA can finally confirm where the bullet came from, and that's why Lex is in prison at the end of the movie. He's in prison because he was uh, because of the bullet and because of the Senate. Uh, it all it comes back to haunt him, and so I I love that she plays a huge part in this film. Um, it's just it's a little bit more understated. I, I just love it. So uh, I I really love her character, and I can't wait to see more of her. And as we learn from um, a visit from the Flash from the future, maybe we're not sure. Uh, she could be the key. Uh, Lois is the key. Somehow we'll see. We don't know yet. And remember, we're, uh, we're basing a lot of our assumptions on the theatrical cut. Because... Yeah, that's true. By and large, I think all of us are smart enough to be able to watch a movie and say, some of these edits aren't exactly where they need to be. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's going to be interesting visiting this podcast again after watching the director's or extended cut and see where those narrative threads may have a little bit more connective tissue to the overall narrative. Mm-hmm. Wanted to ask you guys, as we were talking about him, uh, Jesse Eisenberg as, as Lex Luthor, and what you kind of thought about this uh, reimagining of a character who has a plan within a plan within a plan, and of course seems to have this shadowy villain that we comic book fans know as Darkseid behind him somehow taking all this on. What did you think of him? I, I loved his interpretation. Um, there were cer- there were certain moments I loved more than others. There were some points where I was just like, eh, I don't know if I get it. It's a uh, Tristan. Yeah. It's Cherry. <laughs> I totally thought you were doing something else. Um, yeah, like I loved his creepy moments, like when he put the the cherry, you know, like Jolly Rancher in his mouth. I loved those creepy moments, and there was other moments where I was just like, eh, I don't know, Jesse, you should have done take two on that one. Um, but. I always thought that Lex in the comics was way too suave. He was way too calm and collected. And I feel like if we're if if all of this movie is about modern interpretations about like what would Batman be like in this climate? What would Superman be like in this climate? Jesse Eisenberg playing Lex Luthor in this climate, I feel like this guy would be socially awkward. He would not be a good public speaker. He would be he'd be operating on such a different level than everybody else that he would be a little bit on the spectrum and you know just like he just can't relate with people and that's what Jesse Eisenberg played with and that's why I like this interpretation. Is it is it loyal to the comics? No, but it doesn't have to be. But actually what in this movie or in this interpretation of of Superman and Batman is. And that's what I love about all these different interpretations of a character. It's just a different take. And I agree with you, Tristan. I think that Jesse Eisenberg just killed this. I mean, he killed it as Lex, in my opinion, because, and again, the reason why I'm wearing this specific shirt is because 1978 Superman was everything to me, but I can still embrace what's happening with just the, the sheer level of talent and genius that's going on with these performances. Lex is damaged goods. He is completely damaged goods. I mean, we know that he has an abusive father based on the scene with the senator. We know that he hasn't changed anything in that room for fear of what his father would say. And his father's, I believe, is past, is gone. He's haunted by this thread, this, this unseen force and presence that's this abusive nature of his father. He's like, you know, his father always, he's judging him from on high. 
And that's what he can't stand about these heroes, these, pe- these, these beings that are judging him from on high. How dare they? Who are they? How do they do this? I'm a modern man. I'm a, I'm a self-made genius. My talent has brought me this far. No God has given me this. No one's given me permission to do this. I've done it for myself. You know, and that's the way he sees it. He's like, this alien being, who is he? What right does he have over humanity? You know, even the superheroes and Batman, you know what? He's a human. I can manipulate him. I can think 10 steps ahead of the world's greatest detective. Mm-hmm. That's the greatness of this role that people aren't seeing is that he knows the strengths and weaknesses of his enemies. That's Lex. But we see it in Gene Hackman. We see it in Kevin Spacey. We see it in, in uh, Michael O'Shea. We see it in Michael Rosenbaum. We see that part, the Machiavellian Lex. But we don't see, and what Jesse Eisenberg is seeing, we don't see that completely wounded Lex to the point where he's like, I, where Batman has driven himself to punish criminals and where Superman is driving himself to become the hero, Lex is driving himself to become the control. He wants to control everything because he was out of control for so long when his father was in the picture. I, I mean, what I love about him is that he fits within the mold that we see for these super smart Silicon Valley types. I mean, it's it's like Mark Zuckerberg and Steve <laughs> Jobs had a love child, uh, and this is what you get, you know. Um, and I, 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 I agree with you guys because in the end, to me, he is actually very classic Lex Luthor. He has a plan within a plan within a plan. He always has a backup plan for if something doesn't work. If Superman doesn't, you know, kill the bat or the bat doesn't kill Superman, well, then I unleash Doomsday on them, you know. Uh, and what I am disappointed, there is a great um, deleted scene that came out that showed exactly kind of how Lex gets caught by the government and who he's communing with, and it lets you know, yes, he's had contact with Darkseid. He knows what's coming, and apparently, my guess is he was tasked to, to, to kill the god on this earth so that Darkseid would have an easier time taking it over. That would have been a straight-up uh, awesome end credit scene, by the way. Yeah, you know, so um, I, I, I really, I, I did enjoy him. I, I thought he was fantastic. I actually liked the music they had for him because it reminded me of the music that Williams did for uh, for Gene Hackman, Lex Luthor. It kind of that playful, you know, like goofy sounding. I mean, it was that boom, boom, boom. I mean, it just it it fit. It it felt like Lex, and I really liked it. Um, well, at Wonder Woman is finally on screen for the first time ever. Uh, and I wanted to know what you guys thought of Gal Gadot bringing her finally into the DCU, bringing her to film. And uh, are you guys excited about a little Wonder Woman film coming out next year? Because I'm not going to lie. I'm totally pumped for Wonder Woman, the film. I thought it was a great scene uh, in Batman v Superman when Wonder Woman was reading the email from Bruce. And... Or or was it Bruce? Oh no no! It was Bruce uh, doing his research when he was when he was mm-hmm. cracking into the into Lex's OS, and he sees the picture of her from 1908 standing next to Chris Pine. The music hitting that moment, him scrolling down, us realizing, uh, you know, all of us, we we all knew it, but for some reason it was still invigorating at the same time. Finding out that you know Gal Gadot is Wonder Woman in that moment, 
it was played so well that I just started geeking out. And there were so many moments throughout the movie. I think, I think I, I, I tell people I enjoy this movie more than I think it's good. And because there are so many, I, I can recognize that there's a lot wrong with it. But at the same time, there are so many moments that I enjoy and so many things that I enjoy. And Wonder Woman was a big part of that because so many of her moments made me just kind of like shake my arms in place, you know, while I was watching. Like when, you know, like we see her use her shield, we see her use her, her sword, and then she pulled out the lasso of truth. I freaking yes. lost it. <laughs> well, and and when she comes in and blocks Batman, who I, I, I read that... Uh, he actually uh, ad-libbed that line where he's like, oh, sh-. <laughs> and she comes in and blocks it with her bracelets. And you're like, yes! <laughs> and then she uses the energy they've collected to knock Doomsday back. I was just like, okay, this is what I've waited for forever, for Wonder Woman to kick some serious ass on film. She was awesome. And then I have to say, I really loved her cat and mouse game mm-hmm. with Bruce. I, I thought Gal Gadot played that really well, and she came off well. I just, I really liked it. And when she's like, you know, talking about how little boys have no inclination to share, you can just tell she's a woman who kind of despises the world of men. Uh, you know, she's an Amazonian, and she's not really impressed with what we've done with the world. So uh, that, and when she rolls her eyes at, Lex's story about Zeus. Yeah. I thought it was awesome. I was like, she's like, oh, come on. God, this is awful. It's totally not you know, how I it mean, happened. Oh, my God. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Let me tell you how it happened. I was there. Right. And that's one of the things I think I loved most about Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. First of all, I mean, there was this when she was cast, just like when Ben was cast and probably when Henry was cast back in Man of Steel, there was a lot of, there was a collective eye roll probably in the, uh, in the comic book community as to whether or not she could pull off this role. Okay, so let's get back to like, you know, now when we've seen her in this role. Some of my favorite parts about Wonder Woman had nothing to do with the battle scene. Mm-hmm. They were the they were the smaller moments, like her being able to outwit the world's greatest detective and knowing that when she saw the sword that was supposedly um that cut the Gordian knot from Alexander, as like he, she's like, Yeah, no. Because <laughs> she was probably there. One of my favorite properties of all time is Highlander, and it has to deal with the world of immortals. And she know, I mean, when when they introduced her, you could feel you could feel the centuries and, and the millennia behind her. She's seen it and done it all, and she knows how to levy that against what's going on at this time. And she knows that she has to make a stand. Her disdain for the world of men has to drop because the the consequence would be unfathomable if she doesn't step in at this time. And probably my favorite thing about her reveal wasn't about when she blocked the, the, um, the doomsday effect. It was when you saw her in that photo standing next to Steve Trevor. I was like, that's Steve. That's Chris Pine is Steve Trevor. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait for that moment to tie into Wonder Woman when that photo's taken. Because there's going to be something that's going to happen, and there's going to be this great and grandiose battle, and they're all going to stand together and triumph at the end, and that that photograph's going to pop, and she's going to say something like, um, no one can really see that. I need to take that for another one, <laughs> yeah. because um, we, we, I can't reveal myself to the world. And then somewhere along the line, throughout the course of time and memoriam, it's going to get lost, and it's going to end up in Lex's hand, and it's going to tie all the way back 
to what you just saw. So I love that about any type of story that has to deal with the immortals or immortality because it's a cycle with immortals. And she's seen this happen with the gods, with Zeus, with Ares, all the ones that she had to beat back on Themyscira. It's going to be fantastic to see her. She did, and her accent. Her accent gives her this otherworldly and ancient quality about her. And uh, she was just costumed to the hilt. Not her Wonder Woman costume, but the rest of her fashion. Very Etruscan, very uh, steeped in antiquity. And she carried herself with such grace. I, I can't wait to see her in her own film. Well, her scene uh, leads also to uh, the rest of the Justice League members who will be Justice League members. Uh, no Green you know, Lantern. Flash, <laughs> Cyborg, uh, Aquaman. Uh, what did you think about the way that they worked that in? Does that work for you? Because I also hear a lot of people complaining about that on the internet. Because that's what we do on the internet. <laughs> Which is, again, why we can't have nice things. I liked the reveal through Bruce, but I did think the reveal through Wonder Woman was a bit much. I feel like the reveal with Bruce when it was just the iconography, I thought that was awesome. I thought it was cool. It was a nice Easter egg, and it was enough for people to be intrigued to try to find out more. And the people who did know what was going on, it was a, it was a nice fanboy fan service without you know, hurting the plot. With the Wonder Woman reveal, I felt like it was very much a moment that insisted upon itself. It's like, hey, everybody, we're trying to establish a universe. More films are coming. Pay attention. And it, I did not think it was needed in this movie, but I understand why they did it. Yeah, I mean, it was neat. I, I thought that um, all the different icons were neat to see. I read a criticism online saying that, so you're basically telling me that Lex Luthor is involved with all the iconography of the Justice League? <laughs> okay, I mean, if you want to read it that way, fine. But I mean, I make my own fun icons when I like make my files and stuff like that. And who knows? Why not? Who says? Who's to say that that Lex Luthor didn't do this? Why is that a rule, right? So I thought it was interesting. I thought that all the different reveals were neat. I thought that Jason Momoa looked really good. Uh, I liked uh, his intensity, and I just liked the way that they shot it underwater. Uh, we know that. And Matthew, you and I have had very many back and forths about Ezra Miller as the Flash, and I still would like to see Grant Gustin in there, but I love me the Grant Gustin, so hey, don't blame me on that one. But I think the really interesting thing was Cyborg, because Cyborg isn't someone... And the mother box? Yeah, right? <laughs> that was pretty cool. But here's the cool thing, and it's a funny touch, and I'm not sure like if the casting directors did this coincidentally or on purpose, but Joe Morton, who played Dr. Stone, also played... Interesting, you're smiling on this. <laughs> he played Dr. Miles Dyson of Cyberdyne, who was the father of cyborg technology in Terminator. So I was just kind of like, when I looked at him, I'm like, I like that. It warmed my heart a little bit, saying like, <laughs> okay, nice there you are. To the camera. Yeah, it was, it was a bit of stunt casting that I did not mind. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I, You know, I am with you, Tristan. I can understand cinematically why it could feel clunky to some people. Because I'm such a fan of the comics, I didn't care. Uh, because I can't, I cannot wait for Aquaman, the film. And I do have to say, um, as much as uh, Grant Gustin as The Flash would be cool, um, I liked the Flash scene because it was very Flash. Uh, you know, it, it felt right in line with everything I know about him. Um, I love that he doesn't even put the milk back. He just runs and does his thing and comes back, and the milk has not moved. 
Uh, so it, it, again, that for me worked. So, um, and I, I, I can't wait. I, yeah, Aquaman, he's, he's going to be the real deal. So, um, well, we talked a little bit about, but I kind of wanted to see uh, with Jeremy Irons, if there was anything else you guys wanted to add. Um, for me, I will just say hands down, he's my favorite Alfred. Um, I, I think he feels like, the Alfred that uh, I really got in, in Earth One comic book series that Jeff Johns has been doing, uh, where Alfred is ex-military, very smart, and very hands-on. I loved it. And he had some of the funniest lines in the film. Uh, people say this movie's not fun. Every time Alfred's on the film, he's making a joke. Uh, you know, so this movie's not devoid of jokes. It has a few of them. They just fit with the plot. And when he's like... Even though there's not going to be any more Waynes, you mm. know, talking about whether or not he'd have the wine cellar empty. I just, he's great. He was fantastic. I love him and I, I really can't, I can't wait to see a Ben Affleck solo Batman film with more him and Alfred working together. You know, it's interesting, this Alfred, because everybody has all these different interpretations of Alfred that are kind of floating around in their head. I mean, you have the Alfred Pennyworth, obviously, from the comics. You have, the Alfred Pennyworth, who I think was amazing in the Batman animated series, and that line about the children is very much of that Alfred. You have Michael Gow from the original movies. You have Michael Caine, and I think that was more Michael Caine than Alfred. That's why that Alfred was successful. And then you have this one. And I think that Jeremy Irons' version is very much kind of like in line with Sean Pertwee's version from Gotham. You know, he's yeah, like, very a, similar. You know, he's a little bit younger. He's not kind of like the um the, the elder statesman, the elder British statesman, but. In, even in David Mazzucchelli's and Frank Miller's uh, Batman Year One, you know they did. He did say that you know, you know, Father, you left me a, a veteran of combat medicine as my butler. You know, so someone who could stitch me up when things went badly. So this Alfred is just a really great amalgamation of probably the best parts of Alfred, and I think it's mm -hmm. nice to play him a little bit younger so that he's a little bit more contemporary to Bruce, and Bruce sees him more as a, a companion than a servant. I think he always has though, but it's interesting the. With the void of not having Robin, Alfred becomes that, just his soul, the thing that keeps him a little bit more human than he, he um, is for the most of the time. Because he's, he's always teetering on that, um, the imbalance between justice and humanity, his own humanity. And Alfred always kind of just, you know, he likes needling him a lot. And I think that's pretty, I, Jeremy Irons does it better than most. I cannot wait until we get the flashback of the death of Robin. Mm, yes. Yes. That is going to be gruesome. Yeah, it's going to be emotional and it's going to be great. Do you think it will look like the killing joke kind of thing? Like, do you feel like they'll go with that kind of death for a Robin or do you think this is death in the family? Uh, I think it's going to be a, like death in the family. The yeah. Family. I think it's, okay. I think they're going to use a crowbar and then Joker's going to finish him off with a gun. I think that's what's going to happen. Is this going to be Jared Leto's Joker? Oh, yeah, it would be yeah. Jared Leto's Joker for sure. Yeah, and this is going to be Jason so. Todd, or where are we at with this, Robin? Uh, we we don't know. We we don't we have no idea. We don't know if they're going to follow the... Uh, we don't know if, like, someday down the line we get introduced to Nightwing, or we have no idea if this is, you know, s somebody else than other than Jason Todd. There's a rumor floating around that uh, Jared Leto's Joker is actually Jason Todd, you know, and so, you know, it's... <laughs> really? Yeah, it's huh. it's... There, we just don't know. That's we just don't know. That's going to be a really interesting thing to balance because that, I mean, the death in the family that was like 
it was the first time that I remember in DC where a hero stayed dead. You know, like he was dead. Jason Todd was killed. And then you went to Tim Drake land and that's okay. But ooh, that's, those are big shoes to fill. I guess hmm, interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we've gotten to fight night. God versus man. Day versus night. Gotham bat against son of Krypton. Uh, we, I mean, obviously the film was, was Batman v Superman. It's not Batman versus Superman. So I always knew this wasn't going to be the end all be all. It wasn't going to be just the main, and we're always going to end up with them being friends in the end. Uh, that was going to happen. But I have to say, this is a great fight. It's really good. And uh, so wanted to see first, what do you think of in this film, the, the, the reasons they set up for them to be fighting? I never thought that I would hear the public cry that a fight needed to be longer. I, I, I yeah. never <laughs> thought I would hear that. Like the same people who criticize Man of Steel are criticizing this for the length just in the opposite direction. It's insane. Um, I thought it was great. I thought the reasoning behind it completely made sense. I mean, if you know Batman and you know his history, I mean, like, there, according to the Justice League comics, Batman, as in Bruce Wayne, has a way to defeat every single member of the Justice League. And somebody finds that data and uses it against the Justice League, and then they find out that Batman was the one who mind, like who who developed that data in the first place and like how 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 can we trust you why would you do this he's like if you wouldn't do the same then i don't want to be a member of this team B- batman was not even apologetic for doing this mm-hmm. in the first place that's batman so good because so good. if like they, it's it's the whole who watches the watchers batman right. watches the watchers and it's ingrained in his DNA. He is justice. And if the most powerful being on earth gets out of control, we need to have a safety plan. And that safety plan is Batman. And so this entire movie makes 100% sense if you're a fan of the comics. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just watching that the other day. And he's like, you know, we're fighting. He goes, who are we fighting? We're fighting me. You know, Batman had every single contingency plan. That's Batman. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry for anyone who's listening to this that disagrees with me because Batman is that guy. He's the guy who has driven himself ever since he saw his parents murdered to be that contingency plan, to have everything thought out. This is why Batman's socially awkward and he has to guise himself into this Playboy millionaire uh, persona because if he's not Bruce Wayne, he has thinking about countering every single move, every single of uh, um, opportunity to be able to to be able to complete his mission, to exact his plan, to exact justice. No one's going to get, you know, he's not going to get beaten or bested ever. That's, that's his goal. I mean, that's, that's who Batman is. And I have to say the very first scene when, when Superman stepped into the Sonic trap, I was squeeing all over the place. Cause I was waiting for him to say like a nosebleed. So soon Clark evening is so young. I'm like, Oh, that was so dark night. Right. But even not, Referencing Dark Knight, you saw how Batman was a tactician, he was a combatant, and he was prepared. Superman has to rely on his alien DNA to be able to pull him out of a fight. Batman relies on skill, 
on anticipation, on training, on drive, on study, on everything possible to be able to give him the advantage in that fight. And if he doesn't have the advantage, he makes the advantage. That's what you saw in this fight. You saw him take every single precaution necessary to win. And at that one moment when he was going to win, he stopped. And I thought that was brilliant. He was, he had him dead to rights, literally. And you had this entire fight building up to this moment. It's like Batman's like, I've bested you. I've bested a god with all of my training. Same way that Lex has bested a god with all of his intellect. And then something pulls him back. And I, I thought that scene was just, it, for me, it was just brilliant because one move, one ounce of pressure, and what it, would, it would have been over. Batman would have won. What I liked is that Lex used a different type of kryptonite on each of them to get them to this point. Uh, he used uh, Bruce's anger, fear, and mistrust of Clark. And what I love is Lex knows who everybody is. He knows Clark is Superman, and he knows Bruce Wayne is Batman. That's what I love about these characters. They're not stupid. Lex is ultra smart, and, and he uses each of those things. He uses that against uh, Batman, and then what he uses against Clark is his humanity. He actually uses that humanity that Clark has, that, that sense of justice, right and wrong, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, that sense of social justice that, that Superman has had ever since 1938 when he first came on the scene. Superman was a social justice warrior fighting for the poor, fighting for those in need, uh, fighting those who didn't have a voice. He's doing that this entire film. And so when, you know, he gets those pictures uh, and he sees what the branding has cost that guy his life, he knows one thing he can do is put a stop to Batman being judge, jury, and executioner. And I love that scene. Uh, people are like, why does Clark go and stop Batman from chasing bad guys? Well, you know, he doesn't really trust Batman and his motivations. So to him, he's saving lives. Because it's not Batman's job to be judge, jury, and executioner. And that's why Superman's like, consider this mercy. I could take you out and nobody would ever know and it would be fine. But I'm saying just stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, I love that Lex uses this type of kryptonite against both of them to play them off of each other. But my favorite thing about this fight is that Clark has a choice. And even when he talks to Lois to get to this fight, he's not quite sure which way he's going to go. Does he bring the head of the bat to Lex to save his mother? Or does he just try to get Bruce to help him? And it's really cool that by the time he gets there, he lands and he says, Bruce, I was wrong. I need your help. And that's his whole goal is to get Bruce to a place where they can talk, not fight. And the only time he gets there is when he's down and about to die. And I, I think that's great. Again, it's very Superman, he, he's never going for the killing punch with, with Batman that he could give. He's just trying to get him to a place where he's stopped enough so they can actually have a conversation. And so it brings us to Martha. And I personally well up every time this scene comes on screen. Um, 
because I think it's... Damn it, I'm going to do it now, too. I think it's really moving because I like that Bruce, by having that happen, by having Lois run in and say, that's his mother, I love that that Bruce, it's like the illusion and the fear and the anger are broken in him, like that they've had a hold on him and they're broken and it's gone. And he realizes, I think, one, that he's been played uh, and that doesn't make him happy. Uh, and two, that he sees Clark for the first time as just as human and just like he is. Like, Clark is me, and I am Clark. We are the same. And it's, it, it, yes, it's we had mothers of the same name, but it brings him to a realization that Clark is just as human as I am, even though he's not human. He's, we're the same. And I think I find that really beautiful. And people are like, oh, well, you just high five. And they're like best friends. Well, yeah, because they realize they don't have a reason to be fighting anymore. You know, they realize, especially Bruce, he realizes everything that he's built up about this guy is completely wrong. He was all totally wrong. And what I love about him in this film is that he is able to admit that readily and then move on to what's next. And to me, it works. Gangbusters, I think it was awesome. So, You know, it's. I wish we had an entire hour to spend on this particular part of the conversation because for me... We don't, because Tristan's face just said we don't. <laughs> I, I'm fading this fast. <laughs> okay. This, in, in, in my opinion, this is where the movie is trying to make its, its true point. Batman's blood was up ever since... The moment go ever since he he basically sought his vengeance and fixed his sights on superman he had one purpose and one purpose only and that was to beat superman that's batman he wants to achieve his goal meet his goal lock it down move on when that happened when he had the killing blow in his hand and superman made a plea whatever happens to me save my mother first save martha it stopped him just enough to be able to question why did you say that? Why did you say that name? And that goes all the way back to the very beginning, the origin story of Batman, the last word of Thomas Wayne. It gave him pause, and it gave the audience the understanding that Superman is an alien that was raised by humans that gave him his humanity, and he almost lost it. Batman was a human that was raised by his vengeance and you know his uh, his willingness to exact justice upon criminals that gave him his humanity or saved it batman was this close literally an ounce of pressure away from losing it all losing it all and then the one name that was common between those two men saved him it saved batman from losing his humanity it saved batman from giving into every single thing that he wanted to fight that caused him to be batman and that was murder right? You know, he was going to murder Superman. For what? What reason? Because he was different? Because he was an alien? Because of his principles? They weren't good enough. So at least it gave him the, the opportunity to think. And this is where Lois is not a damsel in distress. Lois is like, he's, she's pleading on behalf of the world's most powerful being that was about to be killed at the hands of a mortal. She's like, that's his mother. This, this, he was raised by somebody from Kansas, Right? See him for what he is. 
See him for how he was raised. See him for the humanity that he still needs to protect. And Batman's like, what, what just happened? It snapped him out of this, this funk, this veil, this, uh, pers- this, this misconception of what Superman, Superman was. And when I was sitting there, I was just like, good God, that's amazing. And then when I hear it online where they're saying like, oh, Superman and Batman have the same you know, mother, high five. Or a friend of mine said, is it really true that the whole fight ended because they have the same name or their mothers have the same name? I'm like, you're taking it so completely out of context. And this is where I have an issue with social media. They're taking a blurb that means absolutely the entire crux of this movie and turning it into a soundbite. That's not fair. That is not fair to the movie and it's not fair to the storytelling. So you have to see it for what it is. And that's for both of these unstoppable forces and immovable objects taking the time to understand what is going on and making sure that they don't go past that point of return. Because once they do, they lose it all. They lose everything. Superman loses his life. Batman loses his humanity. It's gone. And Lex wins. That's it. That's the end game. Lex was waiting for that to happen, and it didn't happen because of this commonality that they had about being human. That's where the secret is in this movie. You know, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, it, it frustrates me to no end that people don't see this, you know, and I'm probably going to, and send me all the mail. I know, Chris, Tristan, you say this on, uh, um, you know, on, on, on To The Journey all the time. Send me the mail. Send me the mail. Send me the mail. I'll, I'll be happy to debate this point because I was to the point of tears when this happened because this is the story. This is what makes this story awesome. Okay. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's, no, no. Uh, here's the thing. I, I would, I don't want you guys to misunderstand me here, because I agree with everything that you guys are saying. I, I, I do. I, I, I am. It, I think you guys are absolutely right about the themes, the motivation, the reasoning, uh, the application. I, th- I agree with every single thing you said, but this was my least favorite part of the movie. Because I do not feel like Snyder and company achieved what they set out to achieve. Now, Norman, Matt, you guys, you saw what they wanted to achieve. You saw it. I saw what they wanted to achieve as well. But we needed more. And I feel like the fan reaction is a little bit of proof of that, where we needed more discussion. Because I I feel that way as much as the other people who are criticizing it. Now I'm not criticizing it as venomous, as venomously, and I I am uh, I can recognize what they were trying to do, so I can go like, okay, well this is what they were trying to do. But it is my least favorite part in the movie because it's the turn, it's the point of no return, it's the you cannot come back from this. This is the beginning of the climax, and they had a misstep where they built up all of these beautiful emotions and Lex moving everybody around like chess pieces and they showed Batman's origins and they had uh, they had a Superman standalone movie and these past two movies were building up to this one moment and they could have fixed it with 30 seconds of conversation or not, I don't want to say exposition, but just more back and forth because it was... Batman switching off something in his head is all well and good and great for the character, but it's not necessarily great for the audience. We needed just a little bit more, and I feel like the rest of the world could have seen what you guys saw. And we still might. Maybe. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we still might. But the thing I mean, is, we I think need the, to put it in the theatrical cut. 
You know, like we you, we we can't. You know it, that that is the with an extended cut with a director's cut. It's nice to have extra scenes because they add to the story. This was the story. Yeah. No, I understand I, I, what you're saying, Tristan, and I feel like um, yeah, I I could have had more. What I liked about it was that for me, Affleck's performance gave me what I think you were asking for the way in which he pulled back and the eye movement, because at that point you can see his eyes. They're not the glowy eyes anymore. And half of his face is showing because, you know, Superman has destroyed half of his helmet and everything. I just felt like the performance gave me all of that, everything flat. It was almost as if his life was flashing before his eyes and all the bad decisions that he's been making and realizing, I just felt like he was playing it, that he's realizing everything that he's, done and how he's been played and how he's been brought to this point of almost committing murder which he hasn't committed murder yet where he's drove and driven the stake in somebody's you know heart um or consequential damage you know a collateral damage for a fight or something he's about to do something he can never take back and i can understand though and and if we had had more I would definitely not have complained. I would I would have definitely wanted more as well. Uh, it definitely worked enough for me. Um, but I think you make a great point, and I, I'm glad that you had a counterpoint to, to Norm and I because I think it's valid. It's it's good criticism, and you actually gave okay. This is how you fix it. Mm-hmm. Now, th- like for those for those of you at home, or even for you guys, if you if you don't quite under, like if you loved it and you don't quite understand where I'm coming from, Matt. Uh, I want to uh, put it in Star Wars terms. Okay, so... Uh-huh. Yeah, you're listening now, yeah. Um, okay, so you remember with Force Awakens, you and I had several conversations about The Force Awakens. You saw it seven times. I saw it once. And we were talking about the beauty of the prequels is the world building, is the behind the scenes, is the mm-hmm. is the information that comes about. And in Force Awakens, we didn't, like, we didn't really get that. We We didn't really get... Well, why are we following this person on the world who just exploded? Are we supposed to know her? And then we find out from behind the scenes information that, um, like, oh, that's that's the the that's Carrie Fisher's aide. And there was it, you and I had a discussion about how JJ made the audience work for some information in their own heads when he should have presented it to them. That is how I felt about this moment where Snyder made us work in our own heads to put the pieces mm-hmm. together when he should have done that for us. No, that's that's very valid criticism, and I cannot fault you for that, because honestly, um, I will, and, and people are going to yell at me, that's fine, send me all the mail, that's fine. Yeah, send Matt the mail. Send Matt the, send mail, the yeah. mail, send Matt the mail. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's like the name of the show almost. <laughs> send me all the mail. Send us the mail. Uh, the, I don't feel like Han's death works as well as I felt like this worked. That That's, that's how much this worked for me and I, I but I completely understand that, that for you it just didn't work. It was um, a big scene. It, was it a is big, a big scene. Big scene. And yeah. if they had wanted to linger on it some more, I would totally have been okay with that because I, I think it would have been awesome. And and what I do kind of love about this scene though is immediately Bruce goes back to being the one who's there to save somebody, not kill somebody. When he tells Clark, I will save your mother. 
because you're needed somewhere else. There's something bigger that only you can handle. I can't handle what's coming. I, 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 I got a feeling it's not for me, but I can do this. Um, I love that. And, and then, of course, him going to save Martha Kent is one of the best action sequence and, I got to say, the best Batman fight sequence ever oh, because, man, so well, Tristan, you and I talked about this when the trailer came out. It looked like Arkham yeah. Knight, like the moves that you make and everything. I mean, he is just – and when he busts through that wall and grabs that gun and it's the Dark Knight return scene of, oh, I believe you, but he doesn't shoot him in yeah. the head, I had just – it was awesome. Yeah, yeah I – is it definitely a fear of multi takedown, like from Arkham Knight? <laughs> yes, yes. It was executed brilliantly, and this is a Batman that we haven't seen. We've seen the Christian Bale fight scenes. We've seen all the different types of action scenes from all the different movies, but this one for me just it, it resonated so deeply because Batman, Batman was about purpose more so than this scene than I've seen in any other scenes. I love the fact that he. It, that you predicate the scene with the fact that he promised, he said, nothing's going to happen to her. He made that promise to Superman. He's like, nothing's going to happen to your mom. I promise you that. And he made good on that promise in every single possible way. I know that he shot people and he know he used machine guns on people. And he, and he, but Batman is about winning. He didn't go out there and purposely shoot anybody in the head or, you know, he, he wasn't there to kill people. He was there to win. The way that a tactical expert wins is to take every possible offensive advantage that he has. That was that scene. It showed Batman at his very best. And, well, that's not even fair to say. He got shot in the back of the head. His cowl deflected a bullet. So it was a little rusty. And he got stabbed. You know, and he got stabbed. He was a little rusty, Batman. But this was Batman with purpose. He said, I'm going to do a job, and I'm going to make good on my promise. That was Batman. And it was unbelievable. It was a nice way of showing Ben. Do, not Ben. But, you know, his stuntman doing what Batman does. Batman was very blunt in this. It wasn't poetic. It wasn't romantic. It wasn't sexy. It was effective. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of that one scene all the way back to Batman year one where he says, there are many different ways that I can, you know, get out of this situation. Like, like five of them, like cripple, five of them kill, and one of them just flat out hurts. That's Batman. He tactically hit every single one of those people with a very specific reason. You could feel that in the fight scene. And it was just like, it was, it was like living Mazzucchelli. I mean, come on. I mean, this, this is what we live for, right? I also, uh, and there was a great video online, um, and a guy made a point that I wanted to make here that I thought was great. And it's one of the funniest lines for me in the film is when he saves Martha and he says, it's okay, I'm a friend of your son's. And she's like, uh, the cape, yeah. And, uh, I got it. <laughs> Uh, I just, I thought that was hilarious. Um, it was a nice valve. And, yeah. Know, and what was great too is that, you know, she's, she's like uh, giving him the, you know, who are you? And he doesn't say I'm Batman. He says, I'm a friend of your son's. And I think that's a cool moment that he, he's, he's made the, the, the leap to say, I'm on your son's side, you know? And I, I think that's a really cool moment. Um, well, obviously, Lex had a plan within a plan within a plan, and that involved Doomsday. And we all knew that was coming from the trailer, so I wanted to ask you guys, because of course this has been debated ad nauseum online or uh, these days about how this looks, but I just, I thought it worked. I mean, the, the, the whole death of Superman, 
Um, and, uh, you know, everything that they gave us in that fight, I felt like it felt great. I loved that, um, Doomsday starts off looking very trollish from Lord of the Rings and kind of the more and more he morphs, he turns into the kind of more of the doomsday we expect from the comics. Level up. Um, Boom. You know, like, yeah, he keeps leveling up and it keeps getting worse and worse. I, I just, I I really liked the fight. And, and I also liked, hey, Superman takes the thing into space. So there isn't any collateral damage. And Superman's learned. He's no dummy. Um, like all of it, I just, I really thought it worked and I loved the way that the, at the end it came down to these three heroes working in concert together. Lasso of Truth, you know, Kryptonite, uh, Canister and Superman with the Kryptonite Spear to bring it together. And I, I just, I felt like it was a great way to bring these three heroes together, but it's also a great way to tell a very interesting story next for uh, a Justice League that's trying to form, but without Superman in the beginning. And at the same time, like I said earlier, bring Batman redemption, bring Wonder Woman out of retirement, and bring a world together in a way that it hadn't been before because they've seen the Man of Steel give his life for them. And I just, I, I love it. I think it's really cool, and I think the fight's cool. So there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, a lot. A friend of mine actually said, and he, he made a really good point. He said that Doomsday was a an executive decision at the producer level to change something that should have been bizarro. And I thought that was a pretty interesting insight in that because, you know, you have General Zod, you have the DNA replication chamber, you have a lot of this, you know, genetic manipulation, and it could have been a really good in- introduction to bizarro. But, you know, and my counterpoint was, I love Bizarro and I see what you're saying, but everyone uh, in, in a certain age range remembers the pop culture phenomenon that was the death of Superman. And if for anything, you can actually tie those threads all the way back to Superman fought Doomsday, Doomsday won, Superman died. I get that. And that's a really good way to be able to anchor this story in the general pop culture understanding of this narrative. So I, I thought that the, you know, the fight scene was great. Let's not discount the fact that this was really seeing Wonder Woman for the first time in action, and it was phenomenal. She was a warrior par excellence, you know, and she was fantastic. Gal Gadot showed her weight in gold and seeing the lasso of truth. Okay, so we say lasso of truth. To the layman that sees this movie, you know, it's just a lasso. But for all of us who understand that are inside that baseball, we're like, it's the lasso of truth. It's glowing. Oh, my God, that's amazing. But... There's a lot going on in this scene. And, you know, for the listeners, there's understand what they were trying to do with this. I mean, it's it's just it's really the setup for Superman to make his ultimate sacrifice. And I hearken back to probably one of the more controversial scenes in Superman Returns, where Superman just basically wills himself to ignore the effects of kryptonite. Because that's what Superman was doing here, you know, with the kryptonite. I mean, like Lois made everyone made a point to get hit get that spear out of range of Superman for him to be able to do what he wants to do. So for him to be able to will himself with the belief that what he's doing is right and true and just adds to that fuel to be able to do what he did to Doomsday. You know, he's, um, he's going to sacrifice everything. He's going to sacrifice his own life and, and, the, the, and suffer that kryptonite to be able to do what he needs to do. So I, I, I love that in one way, but at the same sense, you know, the, the fanboy in me says that it still kind of breaks a certain convention of why kryptonite was invented in the first place. So 
it, it kind of does and doesn't work for me at the same time. Um, I, I'm one of those people who believes that they should not have shown Doomsday in the trailer. I, I think they should have kept that as a secret. I think it would have worked a heck of a lot better. I still think it works. I liked it. Um, I, I, I'd have to disagree with your friend, Norm. I, I don't think Bizarro would have been good. I, I just can't picture Bizarro on screen, especially not in this iteration. I just don't know if Bizarro would work outside of a comic book panel or an animated movie. Uh, that. Well, that's what I said. I agree oh, with okay, you. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that they chose Doomsday. I like that he got more Doomsday-ish as time went on, as you pointed out, Matt. And I feel like this is kind of the... the we all knew that this was going to be the sign of growing pains. This was... The, accepting Doomsday is the growing pain of people moving on from Nolan to Snyder, from... Um, grounded reality where it's an actual feasible Batman with feasible technology to a universe that has aliens and magic and Amazon Amazonians and monsters. Okay. That, you know, that's the comic book world. We went from an action movie to a comic book movie. And so this is that, this is that scene that tells us that this is indeed what we're in for, for the future, because if it was not for doomsday, if Doomsday was not in there, we would not be ready for a Wonder Woman standalone film, a Flash standalone film, an Aquaman, definitely not an Aquaman standalone film. And Doomsday is the torch that lights the way to the future. I love that, Tristan. That was so well said. And I think the other reason is that it's Doomsday is that it's a villain that is powerful enough to need these three heroes together. I mean, you don't need Wonder Woman at all if it's not Doomsday. Because Batman and Superman, I think, can take on Bizarro mm -hmm. together. You know, but this is a villain that required you to need somebody of the strength and the gravitas of a Wonder Woman to be able to help them take on. Um, and I, I love that. I, I love that they are going to go into the next film and it's not going to be... Uh, Superman setting up the Justice League because, hey, everybody wants to join the Justice League if Superman's the leader at this point. Um, no, it's it's Bruce. He has to he has to do it with the, hopefully the help of Wonder Woman. But, you know, when it's Bruce Wayne coming to you and it's uh, Batman, it's not quite the same gravitas as it is like the Man of Steel. It's just not. So I, I love it. And again, it, it brings you to a beautiful moment of Superman living out exactly what Jarrell said. And it starts with Batman. He helps redeem that character. He helps give Wonder Woman a reason to come out of retirement. And he does for the rest of the world. And I, I totally believe that that's exactly what we want from our Superman. So, um, and not to fanboy out here a little bit, but the Trinity was on How screen. dare you in the 602 Club fanboy? Dude, it's the Trinity. It was Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman yes, on screen for the first time. I'm like, come on. I mean, let's 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 not make that light a point. I mean, that's that's a big deal, you know, for DC. You know, it's like seeing the Avengers together. I mean, I know that I mean I love the Justice League and I love seeing all of them together, but when you see you know, when you see like Justice League, you, you know, and Justice League Unlimited and um, the, the Icons book by Jim Lee, it's always Batman, Wonder, uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. It's these three. They're there. They are, they're real. They're always front and center in every single silhouette and every single cover. They are yep. front and center. 
and now they're here. Even even with the new rebirth, they are front yeah. and center. Yeah, and they're and and they're here. I mean, you know, take the pot shots as they are, or give the constructive criticism, or have the issues and stuff like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're on screen. You know, they're there. We've been waiting for this for so long, and we obviously have our ideals. I call it the um, Matt and I. You've been talking about this. You know, I call it the, uh, the the Star Wars episodes one through three effect. You know, there 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 are certain things we've been waiting for this moment to happen for so long we've brought a lot of our own issues into the yoda cave and you know sometimes they play out well and sometimes they don't you know but the mm. fact of the matter is, is that they're there they're there they're real you know and, and it's, it's neat to see you know yeah no it really is um real quickly i did want to ask you guys about uh, just kind of the rest of the movie, the the music real quick and the look and the feel of it. How did you feel about that? Um, I really like the music at this point. Uh, I've listened to the soundtrack a lot and uh, I really enjoy the Wonder Woman theme. And I don't know, I just, and it's Zack Snyder. So for me, music turned out to be better than I thought it would be because it, work, it works really great in the film. And the film looks great. I mean, it's Zack Snyder. It's, of course, it's going to look great, so. The music, music is always a big part of comic book films, and uh, this did not disappoint. I really like the music, and you know we were just talking about the Trinity and Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's introduction was the coolest, not just because of the imagery and because of Gal Gadot, but because of the music that introduced her in her outfit. Yes, that was my favorite movie. That was my favorite music cue through the entire movie. It was amazing. And as a graphic artist, I love production value and. Sometimes more than narrative, and I'll be the first one to admit it, I'm looking at the production value first. If that doesn't sell me, the atmosphere doesn't sell me. And when I saw Batman's costume, I'm like, yes. You know, I, I loved his costume. I love the fact that it was very effective. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't like Cyborg Ninja. You know, and, and I, I don't mean to insult any of the other movies that came before, but Batman is about results. He's not about... Um, the aesthetics, even though that the two can't be mutually exclusive. I love the Batmobile. I thought it did a great job at conveying just this awesome presence and, and, and aggressiveness of Batman. I mean, obviously, Man of Steel's suit you know, carried over, the Kryptonian look carried over. But mo most of all, I think I was really impressed with the way that they handled Wonder Woman's Amazonian attire. You know, it just had this real, it was battle scarred, and she probably hasn't dusted that off in a while. And it was really neat just seeing her inherit the suit. She was very comfortable in the way that it looked and the way that it moved. And I'm saying Gal Gadot. Uh, everything about this movie visually, because it's Zack Snyder, works. I mean, it's kind of like The Watchmen. The Watchmen was great. It wasn't Alan Moore great, but it was visually great. You know, so if for anything, you will not be disappointed visually from a Zack Snyder movie. Yeah, that's true. Well, guys, I... We've talked so much, and obviously this is a movie that we could continue to talk about, but we can't because we all have things to do. I need to go watch The Flash now. Um, so I wanted to get your ratings uh, on this film and uh, see where you know you fall. Uh, and uh, are you Team Batman or are you Team Superman, Tristan? <laughs> well, I think we all know that I'm Team Batman. And I, uh, as I said earlier in the show, I enjoy this movie more than I think it was good. Uh, because I can I can recognize that it has a lot of structural issues. It has a lot of pacing issues, and the third act could uh, use some retiming. Uh, but that wasn't enough 
to make me not enjoy it. I geeked out hard several times throughout the movie from beginning to end. I had squee moments, as we say online. I, I had so many moments that just gave me pure joy. And who cares if it wasn't a perfect movie? Who cares if it wasn't what I expected or you expected or the world anticipated or the critics anticipated? Who cares? I enjoyed it. And so because of that, I give it a 75%, which I think is what the audience is rating it at on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is the is the the percentage that it deserves, because this is by no means a below 30% movie. That's just an insult. I mean, for you, Tristan, does that does that bother you as much as it bothers me? Yeah, it 30%. It bothers me a heck of a lot because like it started off at 50 and I was like, okay, it's polarized just like Man of Steel. We, you know, that's fine. That's fine. And then it's just started getting lower and lower and lower. And every day it's getting lower. Today it's at 28%. 28%. That is ungodly. That that is that is a that is disrespectful. That that is that mm. feels punitive is what it feels like. Mm. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, it I understand. does. Yeah. Um for me the movie breaks a lot of conventions of the characters. I mean, if you're walking into this movie thinking that you're going to see a Superman of old or a Batman of old, this is not that movie. If you're willing to accept change and in interpretation that this movie introduces a lot of aspects to the characters, a lot of modern aspect to the characters. Superman 1978, as I am wearing this t-shirt, it's my, it's my favorite superhero movie of all time. It embodies what I want Superman to be, but I know that that's not the Superman of today. It's not the hero of today. It's not the model of hero of today. Uh, Winter Soldier is closer to that, which is why it's like rating a little bit higher in my superhero pantheon. But I appreciate the modernist twist to what DC is doing. They're transforming characters. It's not, it's not comfortable. You know, it's not easy to accept. And for a lot of people who are going in that haven't read comic books in the last 10 to 15 years, these aren't the characters that you remember. But that's okay. Embrace the change. You have to accept change as moving forward or else these characters stay stagnant in a world that doesn't exist. You know, so at least give DC the benefit of the doubt that they're trying to challenge the social norms of what people believe that are superheroes. Both choices are great. The old guard is great. The guard that you remember is great. This version is great. These are like almost kind of like Elseworlds versions of DC, you know, and the, D the, the 52 is new. The rebirth is new. There's no defining point that says you have to believe in this superhero model and this superhero model alone there's that's not a rule it's not hard and fast it's not law you know so find the value in it and accept the fact that these things are going to change they have to because superman with pie in the sky truth justice in american way that's not america anymore it's certainly not truth and justice anymore so for me, who's some, someone who's his, he's built his entire life on loving that 1978 movie, I love this movie for the, the exact same reasons that it challenges the way that things need to be challenged today. And I give the rating, I'll, I'll give it four out of five red hot poker batarangs. Nice. Well, I, I'm Team Superman, and um, I really, really like this movie. And I saw it a lot over the weekend. And uh, four times. And I loved it each time. And I liked it more and more each time. And so for me, uh, this is four and a half out of five Shields of Hope. I, I just, this is a great superhero movie. It, it's, it has 
everything you could want from Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman coming on screen. And um, if you've listened to this and you haven't seen the movie, don't take our word for it. Just go to the cinema and make up your own mind. You know, that's what I always tell everybody. Uh, you know, you can listen to what I have to say, but I just encourage you to go and listen to what you have to say because you've actually seen the movie. And so if you haven't seen it, go see it. If you have seen it uh, and you weren't sure about it, I'd say I really galvanized behind the film completely. Second time, knew I totally loved it. First time I came out, I was like, yeah, it's good. Uh, this time I came out, and and this will be controversial, for, and people will think I'm insane and I'll get all the mail I like this more than I do The Force Awakens. So, oh, you're getting all the mail, right? All right. Yes. Yeah, and I know you guys, uh, and and yeah, I mean, I, I love The Force Awakens, so you can know how much I really liked this. Um, I really want to thank our associate producers through Patreon who make it possible for us to talk about these kind of things together. Ken Tripp, Davis Gration, thank you so much. Uh, through Patreon, we're a listener-supported network, so make sure you go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can support the network. We really do need your help. Uh, without you, this isn't possible. Again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. Tristan, Thank you so much for being here. I've loved listening to your opinion because I like to be challenged. And let everybody know where they can find you online. And I know you have some great podcasts that you need to tell everybody about. Well, you can find me, uh, and thank you for that. You can find me on Twitter at the Insane Robin. I'm there all the time. That's the best way to get a hold of me and uh, can to give me show ideas and uh, tell me what you think of the shows or just whatever. Ask me questions and how I interact with listeners. And you can also find me a part of the Nerd Party, which was a, a new network that we launched, uh, Matt, you and I, we, we launched it together this year. And uh, we have three shows up, uh, two of which I am on, one of which you are on. And uh, we have Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast. We have Nerd Nuptial, a show uh, that I host with my wife, as well as a general geek podcast called the Senate floor. And uh, I actually, if you want to hear uh, some more of my thoughts on Batman versus Superman, if you're not sick of my voice already, you can find that on the latest episode of Nerd Nuptial. I have now talked about this movie longer than the movie actually is at this point. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, you can go there and check that out. You can also find me on this network on Trek.fm on To The Journey with uh, my co-host and uh, amazing co-host Charlene Schmidt, where we talk about Star Trek Voyager. Well, Norm, I love having you back in the 602 Club. Let everybody know where they can find you online to talk about Batman v Superman and, of course, about your podcast here on the network. Right on. So, first of all, I wanted to thank uh, Matthew. Thank you for having me here. And uh, this is our first on-mic performance together, Tristan, so it was great to be able to actually see you, talk to you, and interact with you. I think that's fantastic. And uh, I'm looking forward to be able to do that with Shar also because uh, she and I have been dancing around the opportunity to podcast together and I look forward to that. You can find me here on the network on Trek FM as one of the hosts for Standard Orbit, the Trek FM dedicated podcast to the original series. And I guest on uh, this show, the 602 Club, uh, on occasion uh, when the, uh, the subject and the uh, topic moves me and when Matthew can uh, stand having me back on. And... As I mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of the property called Highlanders. So I've actually started a page on Facebook called Blood of Kings. So if you type Blood of Kings in your search field, please join us there because that is a page for all things Highlander. 
and we are on the 30th anniversary of that property so i would love to be able to talk to any of you about it if you're interested in talking about sword fights and immortality because that's what highlander is all about and a little bit more so you can also find me on twitter at starfighter 1701 and you can find me here on trek fm as one of the executive producers on the network well, guys, of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on The Orb with Chris Jones, where we're talking about Deep Space Nine. You can find me on Literary Treks with Dan, where we're talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We also get to interview the authors. And, of course, as Tristan mentioned, I'm on the Nerd Party Network, where I'm on aggressive negotiations with Mr. John Mills, Master John Mills, as we talk about Star Wars each week. And so I hope you'll join us there. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? I just have one thing to say to you. There can be only one. <laughs>